hear the word of the Lord. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So... Guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak to us with words of truth, words that pierce us. You also speak to us with words of grace and comfort. Lord, we know that we need both this morning. So, Lord, as we approach a a, a difficult text and we pray for your Holy Spirit to guide us, guide each one of our hearts, guide each one of our minds, lead us into all truth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This morning, uh, we're looking at uh, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament about marriage. You may not have known this little passage was buried here back in the little book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, talking, marriage is always a charged topic to talk about. And I think this passage, for some reason, takes probably the most sensitive topics of marriage and puts them all into one passage, you know, like a little bomb or something, you know. Because you, you, on the one hand, the passage talks about when a Christian is married to a non-Christian, what does God think about that? That's a difficult topic. Uh, it talks about the importance of children in marriage, you know, and I know that's a difficult topic. You know, some people maybe if you can't have children or if you've decided I don't want to have, ch- I never want to have children, that, that's a delicate topic. Here it is in this passage. And then also it talks about divorce and the Lord's uh, opposition to divorce. You know, this is, it, I, you could say maybe very conservative view of marriage. They should be very slow to get divorced. All these things are here in this passage. And, and of course, you know, if, if you're not married, you want to be married, any sermon on the top, topic of divorce also is, can be kind of raw, can be sensitive, it's a tender topic. And so here they all, all are before us uh, this morning as we turn to this ancient text of Malachi. Um, and, but what all that tells us is that the Lord is um, not sentimental when it comes to the topic of marriage. He's very just truthful, frank with us. And a realistic about, about human life and about uh, what happens in marriage. And 
Um, this passage, actually, it might have been strange as I was reading it to you. It really gives a very good overview of the Bible's understanding of marriage and what marriage is all about. And we'll see that it's challenging. It's very different than our culture, the way our culture talks about marriage, but it's also, it's wise. I think there's some romance in there, in that text. And it's, but also, I would say, heroic. You know, being married, for those of you who are married or going to be married, staying married and going through a life of marriage may be the most heroic thing you do in your life. And so, uh, and so here it is. It's all before us. And so this morning, I want to highlight four truths from this passage about how God views marriage. This is what they are, four things. That marriage is about a shared faith. Marriage is about the formation of your character. Marriage is about a promise. And ultimately, marriage is about the gospel. Four things. A shared faith, the formation of your character. It's about a promise. And it's about the gospel. Okay? And so uh, the first thing this morning is that marriage is about a shared faith. And this passage says that in a couple ways, because this passage says on the, both that marriage, you know, a shared faith is the beginning of a marriage. It should be kind of the entry point into marriage is, you know, two people have a shared faith, but it also says that it's kind of the end of the marriage. It's the goal of what a marriage is all about. And so I want to show you both these things. So first, a shared faith is the beginning of a marriage. And you see this in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Have you not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughters of a foreign god. Now what's happening in this verse is the Lord is saying, you know, I'm your father. And, you know, in the ancient world... Fathers arranged marriages for their children. You know, and some of you might have thought, you know, I wish my dad had talked to me a little more about dating, about relationships, about sex or something. You know, I didn't really get much help. And, you know, in the ancient world, that was one of the things a father would do. And, you know, we don't have arranged marriages as much. But the Lord is saying, I'm your father, and I give you instruction, insight to help you about, you know, finding a spouse and, and what a healthy marriage looks like. And um, one of the things he says, he insists upon in the Old Testament, is that Israel, God's people, were not to marry people from the other nations. Now, this is not, the Bible is not opposed to mixed marriages. We know, actually, uh, uh, you know, the great book of Ruth, uh, Boaz is this righteous man who marries a Moabite, a woman from another nation. And so the issue is not so much ethnicity. It is the faith of those two people who are coming together. And it's important because the, the other nations worshipped other gods. And so what the Lord says is that if you're going to share your life with someone, then their convictions, their devotion to the Lord, the God they worship must be the same God that you worship. It has to be. And so this, message, this passage tells us the Christian should not marry someone who's not a Christian. And, you know, I was listening a couple of years ago. I, I saw a video um, from Tim Keller's of, Tim Keller's a pastor in, uh, in Manhattan, and he put out a book that he wrote with his wife about marriage. And I saw an interview with the two of them. In, this was in New York, and they had a whole crowd of New Yorkers, a lot of young, single people, professionals, urban kind of people. And they were asking him all these questions about the book. And one of the questions was, you know, what advice would you give to someone who's, who's a Christian, who's engaged to someone who's not a Christian? And so Tim Keller goes first, and he gives this very nuanced, kind of gentle answer. He says, you know, well, you know, if the Lord is the most important thing at the center of your heart, 
and you can't share that with the person you married, then they, they don't actually get to come into the center. You, you, you know, that you have a real lack of intimacy there because they can't come into the, the most dear thing in your heart. And so you, you have to keep them at a distance. There's, there's something that's hidden about you from them. So that's one reason. Or if the Lord is not, if you're going to let the person into the center of your heart, then what's going to end up happening is you're going to have to push the Lord out to the, to the edge. And so the Lord won't be the central thing in your life. It's just very difficult to walk with the Lord if you, if you marry someone who doesn't share your faith, you know. And so the, the lady who's doing the interview, she says, wow, okay, that's pretty good. Um, you know, Kathy, who's you know, his wife, what, what would you say to, you know, a young, young woman who's married, she's Christian, she married someone who's not Christian, what would you say to her? And she says, I'd say get unengaged. <laughs> right there. And, you know, Tim Keller's like, good cop, bad cop. You know, she's like, she's a... <laughs> She's, you know, she just tells it how it is, but she says, you know what, I, I just countless people who, you know, they married someone who's a really great person, kind, loving, and yet it was an ache to say I couldn't share this deepest thing about who I was with this person. And so here it is in a text on marriage, even if you're not married, important insight from your father, giving care and insight and direction about um, getting married. Now, of course, this raises a question because some of you would be like, well, you know, what if I already did marry someone? What if I'm a Christian? I already did marry someone who's not a Christian. We already don't share that. Well, you know, one of, this is one of the things about the Bible. The Bible will have a text like this. But then the Bible also has other texts where it talks about people in the church where they're Christians who are married to non-Christians. And the Lord recognizes that there are going to be Christians in that situation. I mean, the Lord is very gracious and he's kind and he gives us encouragement. He even says to a, a Christian who's married to a non-Christian, just by being married to them, you make them holy in some way. By, by your relationship, you bring blessing into their life. And you can say, well, the Lord has me here. The Lord has me to work in my spouse's life and to you know, share the gospel with them and show the love of Christ. And so actually, the Lord is very gentle about this command. But this is important uh, wisdom, is that a shared faith must be the beginning of a marriage. And I would say that the thing that often drives a Christian to marry someone who's not a Christian is fear. It's often, I, well, I was afraid, I'm not, maybe I'm not going to meet anyone. And I'm scared of being, spending my life alone. And what that means, though, if you begin to say that, it means that your hope for your life, the vision that you have for a perfect life, is not wrapped up in the Lord. It's wrapped up in marriage, in finding that special person. And that's actually the second thing that w this text tells us. Not only that a shared faith has to be the beginning of marriage, but but a shared faith is actually the goal of marriage. It's the whole end of what marriage is. You know, our culture thinks, you know, romance, that marriage is about romance. It's, you know, falling in love, you know, emotional connection. And, of course, all those things are part of marriage. But marriage cannot be the ultimate thing. It can't be the end of the marriage as a relationship itself. And let me, let me show you this. If you look at verse 13, this is what it says. In this... Second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards uh, the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. This is a really interesting verse where there's this parallel between their religious life, they're bringing these offerings to the Lord, and all of a sudden there's this distance from the Lord. They don't, the Lord's not receiving their offerings. And the reason for, for it is because they're unfaithful in their marriage. And so the opposite of that is to say that, you know, your marriage will cause disruption in your spiritual life. But a healthy marriage is actually going to lead you to the Lord. 
That's what God says, that marriage was supposed to lead you to me, but instead your unfaithfulness in marriage has separated you from the Lord. And so the positive thing, you know, about this is that if a husband and wife have the same vision about why we're here, what life's about, who God is, if you share that vision, then you can both grow together in your faith. I mean, it's a great joy to grow together in your faith, to learn from each other. You be models for each other, and you get this deepening wisdom from, you know, you guys are different, and you learn, you know, different things about the Lord, and you learn from one another. Um, and I'll tell you what it does is it makes your marriage an important thing, but not the most important thing. Your marriage is an important thing, but it's not the most important thing. And I, I, I read a book several years back by a, um, a marriage and sex therapist named David Schnark, his book is called Passionate Marriage. It's, it's, it's kind of an academic marriage book. You know, it's not, it's not like, you know, something you pick up at Barnes & Noble. Um, but one of the things that he talks about is the most important things to understand about marriage is something that he calls being differentiated. And being differentiated means that you have a sense of self and identity apart from your spouse. And being undifferentiated means that your only sense of who you are is wrapped up in you know, the marriage and the relationship. You get kind of lost in the relationship. And so being undifferentiated, not having an identity apart from your spouse, he says it can look a couple different ways. On the one hand, he says there could be the, you know, the, the person who kind of is emotionally smothering of the other person, you know, that uh, is insecure and say, says they're not being supported, complaining, you, you, other things are always more important than me. And, uh, you know, by the way, this could be the man or the woman can be that way. They're kind of the, the smothering one. And, and, you, um, and what it says is that person is saying, I'm nothing without you. And so I have to cling and hold on to you because I have no identity distinct from who you are. So Schnark says being undifferentiated could look that way. But he also says an undifferentiated person is also the person who's always trying to run away, who's always saying, I've got to have my own space I have to have my own life. I have to be my own person. Uh, because they think that if they get too close, if they get too intimate, the person will just envelop them and they'll disappear in the relationship. So they always have to keep a distance. And so neither person has a stable identity independent of their spouse where they can move close to one another in honesty and love and in compassion. And so the more your life is defined by your relationship to God and not to your spouse. Your identity is based in your relationship to God, not in your spouse. Then you don't desperately cling to them or run and hide. You can intimately approach them as an other, someone who's distinct and different than you. You can approach them with compassion. You can approach them with forgiveness. You can approach them with honesty. You can approach them with goofiness and you know, be, you know, be yourself and distinct and you know, kind of okay in your own skin. And this is what intimacy is. And what, what the Bible tells us is that when you make marriage the goal of your life, you lose the marriage. But when you make God the goal of your marriage and of your life, you get him and then you get the marriage thrown in. That's what happens. Is the marriage get, is a bonus. You get the marriage, bo you know. And so this is what this tells us: the that a shared faith then is is both the beginning. You have to build, start your relationship there. That we're going the same direction is also the goal throughout your marriage. Is you, we're both looking in the same direction, growing in our faith and knowing Christ. Now you might say, well, okay, that makes sense. 
but I, you know, I realize I'm both the clingy person, you know, that's insecure and grabbing, don't let me go, and I run away. I think I go back and forth from both of those. And does that mean there's no hope for me in marriage? Marriage is going to be chaos all the time. It's going to be discouraging. And I think the hopeful thing is the second thing is that marriage is not only about a shared faith, but marriage is about the formation of your character. It is through marriage that God transforms you, us. That's how God transforms. He uses the marriage. And, you know, you know, our culture is very obsessed with finding that perfect person to marry. And, you know, some of you might be in that quest right now. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety. Or even when you got married, it's like, uh, is this the person, the perfect person, the right person? Are they going to give me the life that I want? And often, you know, it's very discouraging. When you think, if I find that perfect person, then they're going to satisfy all my longings. They're going to give me my dream life. That's all I need is that person. And when they fail to do that, of course, that leads to all kinds of coveting. And you look at other people, this is the wrong person. Maybe if I married that person, then, it would, you know, I would have had that dream life that I was hoping for. But the scriptures tell us that marriage is not primarily there to make you happy. God has placed you in your marriage to form Christ in you. God has placed you in your marriage to form Christ in you. That is his purpose, to teach you faith and forgiveness and compassion, gentleness, wisdom, honesty, These are the things that we don't know how to do that God is going to train us in to make us like Christ through our marriage. And it turns out that actually all those things are happy things. You know, if you're a gentle and compassionate person and you're an honest person and, you know, you know how to speak the truth, that's actually a happy life. But again, the happiness is thrown in. It's not the focus. God's focus is character is first. And you can see this uh, here in verse 15, the second part of verse 15 there. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It's an interesting exhortation. Guard yourself in your spirit. Talking about your inner life, your emotional life, uh, your thought life. And that that's one of the main things that God is doing is a transformation in your inner life through your marriage. He's using your marriage to bring a lot of things up that are happening in your inner life. And make you face a lot of the things that are happening in your inner life. You wouldn't face them unless it was for the marriage. That's why it's there. And I'll tell you, uh, Schnark, the guy that I read the book, the Passion Marriage book, you know, he makes the point that you always marry someone at the same level of emotional maturity as yourself. You know, some, you, know uh, you might think, you know, I'm so much more uh, mature than, emotionally mature than my spouse. I know how to talk. I know how to relate. You might, you might think that. But Schnark says, you wouldn't have married that person if you were so much more, emo- you might maybe are a half step ahead. He said, you're definitely not a full step ahead. You're may- maybe a half step ahead. And if you were that much more emotionally mature, you would have realized that within two weeks of the relationship and you would have broken it off. And so you might be emotionally immature in different ways. And so you might not be alert. You might be blind to the ways that you're emotionally immature and you're you know, alert to how your spouse is emotionally immature. Um, but God has given you the ideal sparring partner for your fights, your difficulties are all tailor-made for transforming your character. And actually, the right things are being brought out in your 
fights. They're on the table. It's a, a tremendous opportunity, says, that God has tailor-made them. That's why you cannot run away from your fights. That's why you can't run away from a marriage. It's because it's exactly in those things that he's going to transform your character in, in, in your inner life. Now, of course, this raises a question. You know, does this mean that one person can't be more wrong in the marriage? You know, we're, we're all equal here. And, you know, I think as a general rule of thumb, I would say it's better to come in and say, hey, listen, we're, we're at the same level. And let's look at the log in my own eye. Um, uh, but, you know, in this passage, it's clear that the Lord is, in this setting, looking at the men and, and uh, critiquing them. And, you know, it's, uh, uh, the men in, in uh, Malachi's day have been tired of their wives, and they're uh, discarding their wives, di- divorcing them, which, is, you know, this is true in the modern world. It's especially true in the ancient world, that if a man just left his wife, she was left very vulnerable. So this is a question of justice, where the Lord is protecting the weak and protecting the poor, and that he's saying, you just can't do that. And so, uh, of course, he is critical of the men. And, you know, this passage is interesting how the Lord views a husband and wife. There's a really interesting word here in, in the second part of verse 14. Look at what it says. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion. Really interesting word choice where commentators would say this is, he's making a point that a husband and a wife are equals. A husband and wife are partners. They're side by side. And I know that there's passages of the Bible that talks about the man is the head of the household. Well, here's a passage that makes it very clear that that does not mean that you are not equals. A husband and a wife are equal. And, um, and it can be common. You know, one of the reasons I bring this up is because it can be common for a Christian wife, especially one who's being abused, mistreated, can look at passages of the Scripture where the Scripture say, well, you know, it says a wife should respect her husband. And say, well, you know, I can't complain against his sin, about his sins. How could I ever complain about, you know, that would be disrespectful to him. But the Bible tells us that actually all Christians are supposed to respect each other. Outdo one another in showing honor, it says in Romans. And, uh, and all Christians are called to submit to one another. You're supposed to submit to one another in, out of fear of Christ, is what it says in Ephesians 5. And yet, even though we are supposed to respect and to submit to one another, the Bible also says that if a fellow Christian sins against me, I should go and tell them. That's what Jesus says. If someone sins against you, you go to them and you say you're sinning against me. You can't do that. And if the person doesn't listen to you, you go find another person and say, this person's sinning against me. I need someone else to talk with us because we got a problem. And if they still won't listen to that, then you take it to the church. And what this passage says is that a husband and wife are equals. They are companions. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's important for the culture of our church that we know that absolutely a woman could say to, about her husband that he is sinning against me and this is wrong and I should not be treated this way as a fellow Christian. We have to treat each other with love. And so this is, now I know this is a whole can of worms I'm bringing up right there, but I just want to take this as a takeaway that this passage says we're equals. And the head of the household does mean that a man has special responsibility to serve his family protect his family. It does not mean that he's the boss of her or he is free to sin against her without it being called out in his life. Absolutely not. The scriptures do not teach that. Okay? So here's the vision of marriage. It's, it's two people who's come together with shared, uh, a shared faith, a shared goal of looking to the Lord who are both sinners 
And the Lord is using this marriage to transform both of them, to learn from one another, grow together, and also using their conflict to actually uh, make them like Jesus. But in order for this transformation to take place, we need a third truth about marriage. Because, you know, the transformation is disruptive. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable how it's happening. Many of you have experienced that in your marriage. There's a lot of bumps along the way. And so you need some stability in the marriage. And this is the stability, is that marriage is about a promise. And you see that there. Uh, verse 14 ends by saying, your wife by covenant. Your, the wife is called a, a wife by covenant. A husband and a wife are bound together by a covenant. A covenant was actually, it was a legal contract where two people make promises together. Of course, it's, you know, there's, it's a legal contract with love attached to it, vows that are made for one another. But this is one of the most important distinctives about Christian marriage, that the thing that holds the marriage together is not the romance of the marriage. That's going to go up and down. It can't be the, the shared life goals can't hold a marriage together because those might change. You're gonna, throughout your life, you're going to have new goals, and maybe you're on the same track together. Maybe you want to go a different direction. That's not, good. That's not stable. And uh, it, it also can't be children. You know, children are going to be here for a while, and then they're going to go. That can't, that's not stable enough to, to hold together a marriage. The thing that can, that can hold a marriage together, the only thing, is this promise, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. That's the foundation of marriage. It's a promise. I will never leave you. And, you know, there's another book I read several years ago about marriage called Hold Me Tight, which actually talks about this, this promise. And, you know, the author was a, a marriage therapist who met with hundreds of couples and said, you know, all the couples come in and they say, you know, we, we don't know how to communicate with each other. We, we talk past one another. We don't understand. And they say, you know, they're actually quite articulate, these people. I think they know how to articulate, you know, how to communicate quite well, you know, and quite, you know, aggressively often. And they know what to say, how to say what's in their heart. And yet they're missing each other's kind of emotions. You know, they, 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 and so, so much marriage counseling will be like, well, the problem is communicating. Well, we need to just teach couples to negotiate. They need negotiating skills. You want this. I want that. How do we make it so we each get 50-50? And, and he's saying, you, you do all this negotiating all day long, and yet there's no vitality. There's no joy in the marriage. There's no shared life. There's no partnership or companionship. There's no growth in the gospel. It's completely missing the heart. And what uh, the author says is this is because marriage is not about a power struggle. It's not about negotiating to get the things I want. It is about one question. Are you going to leave me? Are you going to reject me? This is the one question we really fight for. This is the one question that men and women fight for. This is not, you might think that just men or just women fight for this. No, it is not. This is at the core for all of us. And if that one question is answered convincingly, we are capable of enduring a tremendous amount of hardship and change and face enormous obstacles. And, you know, of course, that's what the Bible says. The one thing about a marriage is built on a covenant. It's built on a promise that says, I will never leave you. And what marriage is about is about learning to tell one another, communicate to one another that promise, both verbally and nonverbally. You know, so when you're in a home and you serve each other, you are saying, I will never leave you. It's like you're saying your wedding vows, again, through, through your actions. Or you, you get in a conflict and you forgive a wrong that was done to you. You are saying, I'll never leave you. You know, when you make love to one another, making love is saying, I will never leave you. We are one flesh. We're bound together. It is all about this promise. 
And, you know, for some, some of you, it may be helpful to say it explicitly. I'll never leave you. I won't reject you. I won't reject you. The world may reject you. I won't. You might have to say that out loud. And this is what Malachi means by being faithful to each other, by keeping the covenant. And I'll tell you, when that is the main message of the home, it, of course, it doesn't just impact the couple. Verse 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. What's fascinating is that God ties together the promise of marriage, a covenant, this I will never leave you atmosphere of a home, ties it to godly offspring, godly children. And so, you know, this raises a question for us. What, you know, what is the picture of uh, godly offspring, godly children? What is your picture? You know, for many of us, when we picture godly offspring, godly children, what we picture is children who, you know, are respectful, they obey the rules, they stay in the church, they get a good job, they're not an embarrassment to us. And what this tells us is that the most important thing for a child to learn in our homes is that God will never leave them. That's the main message that needs to penetrate in their heart more than anything. They need to grow up knowing I'm a sinner who God will never leave. And that's, that's what they need living at the, at the core of their heart. And by the way, rules don't communicate that. Discipline does not communicate that. All important things, rules and discipline are an important part of a home. They do not communicate that. And, you know, uh, uh, Shannon and I, whenever we're, you know, in our kitchen and we're hugging or, you know, I get home from work or something and we're kissing and our kids always come and they try to, like, cram their heads in between us. We're hugging. It's like not one moment alone. They're just like all over us. It's like, get away. And yet, but what they're trying to do is they're like, the message, I'll never leave you, they hear it. I mean, we're not saying it, but they hear it. And they're saying, I want to get into that. I want to be enveloped by that. I want that to surround me and to share. That's what it does. Is I will never leave you spills over into those who are around us. And um, this passage tells us that this is one of God's goals in marriage. Is for, I, for the I will never leave you to spill over to children, for children to grow up in that. Now, of course, this uh, raises a question. Does, does this mean that a marriage is incomplete without children. And I think, of course, the scriptures, you look in other places, obviously would tell us no, that uh, we, we see all kinds of people that are either uh, that are single, they have full lives, people that are, are uh, women that can't have children. And, of course, the Lord has a reg- high regard for them. He looks upon them and he loves them. Um, but one of the things that I think this does tell us, you know, you may be someone who say, I, I can never imagine myself having children. I never want to have children. And... I think at least we should be open to it. We can't make a categoric, Lord, I will never have children no matter what. I think we should be open because this is one of the things that God hopes for in our marriages. And so we, we just have an open heart to it, okay? So how do we become an I will never leave you kind of person? How do you become, that's a kind of person, an I will never leave you kind of person. Because for some of you, that might make your skin crawl just either to think about saying that to someone or to have someone else say that to you. It's like, whoa, that's intense, you know, too intense for me. And I think this leads to the last point that we need about marriage from this passage is that marriage is about the gospel. And you'll notice that in this passage, there's this corollary between our relationship with God 
God's people in their relationship with the Lord and the relationship between a husband and a wife. You know, it's one of the favorite analogies in the Bible, which tells us that actually what marriage is is a picture of the deep reality of the universe. It's supposed to be this flesh and blood picture of the love of God for his people. It's an incredible, brilliant idea that the Lord has come up with. But it also says to us that how I become an I will never leave you kind of person is through the gospel. Because it's in the gospel that we find that we have been faithless to God. We have done everything. We have given him every reason to turn his face and walk away from us and reject us. And, uh, and yet he hasn't. Jesus has come and he's lived the life that we should have lived. Jesus has died in our place. Jesus has embraced us in his kingdom. And despite every sin that we've ever done, every sin we will ever do during our relationship with the Lord in covenant with him, he has pledged, I will never leave you. He has secured, I will never leave you, by the blood of his cross. And if I want to become an I will never leave you kind of person, I must hear that in my heart from him first and realize the depth of how faithless I have been to God, how regularly faithless I am, how small my faith is, and how persistent he is to hold on to me and to never let me go. When that fills my heart, it fills my imagination, it fills my identity, my sense of self, that my identity is not my spouse, but is in this I will never let you go love, then I can be a person that can give that to others. And so all of this, how does, how does marriage become, how do we have a shared faith? How do we have transformation? How do we have a promise? It's ultimately all in Jesus. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, many things that you have stirred up, you have provoked in this text. I pray for your spirit now to go and guide the hearts of all who are here. Pray for the marriages that are here that your word would bring light and truth, but also grace and hope and compassion to the marriages that are here. I pray for those who are single here who long to be married. I pray that you would communicate to those your I will never leave you love. Would that be sufficient? Would that be a strength and a refuge and a hiding place for those who are here? I pray for those who are here who have lost marriages. And I pray that you would be the great husband and faithful one. And that we would find in your church a family. And that here in this church we would learn what marriage is about, but ultimately what the gospel is about. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name, amen.